What up guys? Today's guest, one of my close friends, Dr. Romani is back. And she's so damn special to me and I think to you guys because she doesn't just quote unquote save lives. She actually saves lives by helping so many people, so many of you guys deal and handle narcissistic relationships and finding your worth in them. And so guys, if you're finding yourself trapped right now in a narcissistic relationship, Dr. Romani lays out exactly how to survive it. And not only that, but how to thrive without losing yourself. Because sometimes leaving isn't always an option. We also talk about narcissistic mothers. Guys, this is one thing that I think is so damn important. We talk so much about partners and can we leave or should we leave or the ability to leave. But what about family? What about all the things and ways that family hold us tight and we feel trapped in these narcissistic relationships just because our blood, just because we have the same blood? But before we dive into the episode, guys, please, if this episode did bring you value, if Women of Impact podcast does bring you value, I would love it if you went right now and dropped a review that is so meaningful to me as I try to really get this podcast and other women's voices echoed in the world. And I can't do it without you guys. So please leave me a review and share this with everyone you know. All right, guys, now let's dive in with Dr. Romani what they're doing to this other person is unacceptable and their backstory is not an excuse in this moment they're harming someone else their backstory doesn't matter you can be empathic and protect yourself you can say they have had they've had a rough life and their behavior is unacceptable Why the hell is it so hard for people to leave a narcissistic person in a relationship mm-hmm. even when their lives are at risk? So there's there's a continuum. So it's it's even when in a case where there might be physical abuse or danger, and I almost view that as a separate side issue because I think the vast majority of narcissistic relationships are not violent, right? And I think it's important to make that distinction because a lot of people who are going through a narcissistically, emotionally abusive relationship where there isn't physical violence feels like, well, I'm not going through that, so maybe this isn't that bad, right? So I think that that becomes the, the physical abuse piece we'll put over mm-hmm. to the side and we'll get to it. But the other thing to remember that's unique about narcissistic abuse is that every day isn't bad. There are enough good moments in there, and that's that nature of that trauma bond. There's enough good moments, and the good moments create buy-in. They create confusion. They foster the justification. So a person's like, we had so much fun over the weekend. I, you know, I think he's so attractive. I think she's so much fun. I, I, we have, um, we went on a beautiful vacation. Uh, he got the promotion, and since he got the promotion, things are going great, right? So, there's something to hang your hat on. And I think that what a lot of people get confused with is they think, they hear about these relationships and they think, well, if every day is so bad, why didn't you leave? I said, if every day was so bad, they would leave. Every day's not so bad. Over time, even if every day, it starts getting closer to every day, every moment being bad, those justifications that were created by that alternation that might've been there in the beginning become so strong, but the person's really in it and they're confused. So they're wondering, maybe this is me. 
the partner, my partner keeps telling me it's me. Maybe they're right. I wasn't as nice as I could have been, or I was this, or I was that, especially if it's a legacy issue, if it comes from family of origin issues. So I think the complexity is if it's so bad, then why isn't it, you know, why is it so difficult for people to get out of these situations? Partly it's that, partly it's practical stuff. You know, it's, um, financial fear, fear of being alone, having children, um, um, culture, religion, you know, all those things are very real and they're not to be shamed in a person. Prison's like, well, I guess I'm weak because I'm staying in it for the money. And I'm like, listen, for some people, they'll say, I don't know if I'd be able to afford to keep staying where I am or have kids and I have to worry about that. Or I have a chronic illness and I don't know how I'd support that. I've, I've had people say, I'm staying for the insurance benefits. And I, and I say to them, don't shame yourself. Be clear on it. Because what happens is, let me give you that example. Person says, this is a mess. We have a lot of bad days. We have a few good days. I've justified it for years. Now I see it clearly. I've had a chronic illness. It's hard. I can't work full time. I've been in this marriage for 30 years. A lot of myself's been invested in it. I, if I don't have these benefits, I'm going to get really sick. Uh, I, I, all that's great. I say, okay, understand why you're staying. That, 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 Right now, there's a need that comes, you and you have been hamstrung and whatever else. That, that understand why you're staying, so you can see the rest of it clearly, and to say, and I'm aware that this person is invalidating and cruel and manipulative and gaslighting. I am going to commit to no longer deriving my identity from this relationship. This is not my fault. And so, disconnecting the emotion from that person. It's disconnecting your sense of identity from that person. Mm. Because when we're in relationships, listen, we use other people's as, people as reference points, right? Mm. And I think we underestimate how important that is. The human, the human species takes in social cues. It's why, in part of why with these big brains is we're able to integrate so much, right? So I'm reading your face. So I'll be frank with you, Lisa. If you were just sort of like flat face, not nodding, kind of looking away, you know, just sort of uninterested in me, I might, my moment, my tendency was either, is she not liking what I'm saying? Does she think I'm dumb? Maybe I'm doing a bad job, right? We'd go down this cascade. We get our social cues from everyone. Mm -hmm. You and I aren't in a close, you know, we're close friends, but it's not like I'm with you every day. I don't derive my identity. <laughs> but I don't derive my identity mm. from you, right? You know, I value, you're in a, a part of me. I, you know, I, you're a dear friend. So I'm, you know, I value you in that way. And some of my identity has been shaped by you in a good way, in a very good way. However, in a, in a narcissistic relationship, you're not allowed to be yourself. Mm -hmm. If you bring your real self into the relationship, your needs, your wants, your aspirations, your hopes, that narcissistic person is like, hello, are we talking about something that doesn't have to do with me? Stop. You do not need to exist. Like, don't be a thing in my world unless I need you. Mm -hmm. And an example I always give is imagine you're in your kitchen. And you're like, it's morning. Yo, my, I gotta have a cup of coffee. You're interacting with your coffee machine. Great. Now imagine if it's 1130 in the morning, your coffee machine starts talking to you. You'd be like, what, what, hello, what are you, why are you interrupting me? Oh, coffee machine. After you got past the sort of psychosis part of it, you'd say, um, you're a coffee machine. You shouldn't be talking to me. Now that's how the narcissist views you. Yeah. Uh, hello. Do you, um, I got my coffee from you. I don't, please do not. Make your stuff my stuff. I, I'm not interested in you. Mm -hmm. You don't get to have an identity separate from them in that relationship. And so the mistake people make, and it's not a mistake, it's wanting a normal human relationship, is they come in and they be themselves. 
Well, if yourself is at odds with what the narcissist wants, they're going to shut that down, Mm -hmm. which means the only way the relationship works is if you cut off all those parts of yourself and only live in existence and in line with what they want. And people, it's not that this happens overnight. This happens over years. And then one day a person looks up and says, who am I? And who am I outside of this relationship? Because you've so trimmed your identity to fit this fit this space. And the narcissistic person is very convenienced by what you're doing. And, and because maybe the number of fights drops, the number of conflicts drops, you're like, I'm doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. But what you're actually doing is getting rid of yourself. Wow, I didn't expect that last line. Oh my God, that hit me so hard. Um, You've got rid of yourself. God damn. Okay. So how do you, in this situation like you've just laid out, you've decided I need to stay in this relationship or I've chosen to stay in this narcissistic relationship because of X reason. Mm -hmm. And so you've gone back and you've looked. How do you start to rebuild yourself within that narcissistic relationship? So there's two sets of reasons, right? The e- In some ways, the practical reasons are the easy reasons, right? Because they're kind of superficial, right? This is what my faith requires. This is what my culture says. Housing is expensive. Lisa, I cannot tell you how many people over the years I've had to walk through narcissistic relationships in LA where the housing is so expensive. Mm. And they're like, I can't, we can't, neither of us can afford to leave this. Like, so in, in the way a divorce works, right? You've got to either buy the other person out. So a house they might've bought for $300,000 now is now worth 2 million. Neither of them has a million bucks to buy the other one out. <laughs> but if they sell the house, what they're left with isn't enough to acquire a new residence. So some people are saying, it's a practicality thing. My job's in LA, I can't, you know, so they're making these really, really painful decisions on the basis of practical things like that. Now, the nice thing about that is, you can make sense of that. Like you're, it's very clear. I'm staying this in this for the money. A person has to break through the shame of that because there is no shame. You know, I think that's a practical reason. What's your, what's your option? You know, you know where, know where to live. Like it's really to say, I get this. I also get people saying I'm staying for my kids. And then once they get to a point where the kids have more autonomy, sometimes it's the kid's 18th birthday, that day they march down to the court and say, I'm filing for divorce. So people figure that those are the, I hate to say it, easy parts, the harder part is the trauma bonded piece where those good days are making you justify. And what in that case, you have to give up on the thing that's kept you going for years or decades, which is this might get better. Maybe it will get better. Maybe if I wait another six months, a year till they retire, till this, till that, till blah, till da. And so it's been an enti- it's been a lifetime of chasing a carrot, of chasing a moving goalpost. So now you're saying, you can't, it's done. Like there's no, the game is rigged. You can't win the game. So there's no more hope. It'll always be like this. And the justification cycle has to end. That's a lot harder because that's deeper. It's deeper into someone's emotional DNA. But the biggest technique in all of this is A, understanding the architecture of it. B, something I call, and write about in my new book, something called multiple truths. We want one thing to be true. He's a bad guy. He's not, he not, he not always a bad guy. And people at work actually kind of think he's a nice guy. And then he bailed out the neighbor who had a broken hip. And then he did help your sister, but then he cheated on you. But then he was nice to your kid. But then he did this idea of the narcissistic person as a simple one dimensional cartoon villain is just not real. I wish it was. It would make, it would make it so much easier. But people are like, they were really nice to my mom when she was sick and they're cheating on me. 
and they screamed at me and and then they're just like and I and I say to them think of this as a stack of pancakes thing after thing after thing they're all true and in the end of it though it's not good for you because they're cruel and validating behavior that's the checkmate and that's never acceptable and a person can be nice to your sick parent and be cruel to you and that cruelty to you is taking a toll and if you're staying because they're nice to your mother simultaneously you need to recognize it's not okay if someone treats you badly and that you do not need to get your identity from that you have to be very clear like okay i need the support with my parent right now this thing that's happening is in the relationship is bad I need to disconnect from this. I need to disengage from this. I I have to recognize this is not good for me. Mm. It's that. It's it, and it, is that easy? No, absolutely not. How do you do that thing? I know you said that it's not easy, but because if you're living in the same house as somebody and you've decided I'm going to stay in this relationship, I've got my reasons. Mm. We've just mm. done everything that you've just said. They understand the identity thing. And I'm just projecting, I'm thinking about myself living in that house. I would feel like, okay, I know what they're like. I know that they can maybe erupt. I know that they're, you know, um, their tendencies. But then I would live on, like, on tiptoes. If you're living with someone that you have to be on tiptoes, always worried about if they're going to erupt, how do you Do you have to be on tiptoes? And as long, again, I'm taking violence out of this because it muddies the waters, right? Yes, yes. So they yell, ain't about you. It's about them. And they want a tantrum like a three-year-old, get up and go to another room, mm-hmm. take a walk, like let them have their tantrum. What do we do with a tantruming three-year-old? We don't engage with them. We're like, you work this out. You make sure the child's safe. But I, I can't tell you how many times I drank a cup of tea and watched my child flail on the ground <laughs> until she worked it out, read a, read, read a book. She had to get it out. And then she was done. And then I'm like, how you doing? This, except the difference in narcissists, you wouldn't even ask them how you doing. Mm-hmm. So they rage. It's not about you. It's not personal. It's who they are. They are a tantruming child. So maybe you can, the eggshells come from, honestly, the eggshells come from the idea that you think you can do something about this. I'm telling you there's nothing you can do. Mm. So why are you walking on eggshells? Live your life. Mm. I love that. Um, I heard a video that you did where (laughs) it was actually really funny because you're giving these things of like, look, this is how you get under a narcissist's skin. Mm -hmm. But I'm not you so you can go and get no, under this but this is how it happens yeah. right mm-hmm. um i think you be, you call it the framework of what is going to set mm-hmm. them off now mm-hmm. even um as with what we're talking about knowing the framework i worry that i would inevitably slip into the the pattern right because i think a couple of them you say is like they hate it when you're blase they hate it when you mm-hmm. um you know you, you kind of take your own time or that your center of attention like all these things that really are going mm-hmm. to set them off mm-hmm. if i knew that if i chosen to stay in this relationship mm-hmm. i worry that i would like mm-hmm. oh my god yeah. i can't be center of attention because that's going to set them off correct so here's where we talk about that splitting off your identity part of radical acceptance is being okay with them being set off. Does that make sense? Now, nobody out there welcomes rage. People who have had histories of trauma, histories of growing up in very verbally violent households, that presence of yelling and conflict, I, I, I'll own it very personally for myself. I'm somebody who gets very scared when I, when someone's, even like, let's say people, we're in a place and there are two people over there yelling at each other and had nothing to do with me. 
I would not be able to pay attention to you anymore mm. because that's a, that's a, um, it sort of, it plucks my guitar screen, it, string. It sort of, it leaves me rattled. And that's because of my own histories with verbal, verbal violence. Mm. So you're absolutely right, Lisa, that a person who has that sort of wired traumatic history, wired emotional history, where things like yelling or certain kinds of criticisms would feel very uncomfortable at almost a nervous system level are almost going to unconsciously avoid those circumstances. Like, don't pay attention to me. Please, please don't pay attention to me because I don't want this guy to yell, not even because you even care anymore, but because it's emotionally rattling, okay? That's though when, that's why therapy becomes so important because then in the work of the therapy, it becomes, it could very well be that you start to learn as long as I'm with this person, being the center of attention isn't worth the screaming, mm. right? It's not. They'll say, so I'm not going to put myself in those circumstances. I'm going to avoid as much as I can going to social gatherings with them. I'm going to be a bit more like not bring up my stuff so anyone's complimenting me. I may not work, w- invite them to events where I am the center of attention. Mm-hmm. But what that does mean too, and it's something where people can sort of take some of their power back, is to say, are there people in my life with whom I can be the center of attention and nothing bad will happen? So in other words, you have to cultivate healthy, seeing, recognizing human relationships, right? You're not getting it from that person. That's out. Then fine. So then it might be that you, and I've always said this to folks, if you're in a narcissistic relationship and you get good news, they are never the first person you tell ever. Because a lot of people think they see how cool I am. If they see this cool thing I did, yeah, what then? You think they're going to congratulate you? They're going to view you as a competitor. They're going to tear you down with contempt. They're going to leave you feeling bad about it. You never want to tell them first. You have your people, whoever they are. It could be a friend. It could be a sibling. It could be a colleague, whoever it is. It could be a shrink. I can't tell you how many times as a shrink, I'm the first person they take, Doc, you're not going to believe this, da-da. And I'm so happy for them. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm jumping out of my chair. I'm so proud of you. And they'll come back with me and say, you know, my whole life, this is what I would have wanted from my mom or my dad, and I get it from you. And and I'll say there's grief in that because that's where you deserved it from. But I want you to understand, you just filled another person with joy with something wonderful that happened to you. You slowly learn that people can see you. It may not be, be the people you wanted to have see you, mm-hmm. but it can be others. And then you cultivate that and you take them your good news and they're so proud of you and you're like sort of smiling. And then after three, four, five of those encounters where someone's happy for you, then you tell the narcissism and they're like, Ugh, okay, fine, whatever. What is that? Like, yeah, okay, do we have to go to this thing? Like, psh. And then you know what? In your heart, those five other people are so proud of you you're sort of like, oh, whatever. Mm. Oh, God, I love that. And so do you um, suggest that people would maybe write a list of the things that they feel like they need um, and then have that as like their cheat sheet? Because I'm always trying to think about how I can, um, you know, my emotion is to go to the person that I'm with because you want them to show the love and the pride. It's never going to happen. Right. So is it good to have a list of maybe the people to go to a certain situation yeah, so that in that moment... Yeah. You don't revert back to thinking that your partner's going to do you know something. You know what I suggest? Don't. I'd say go through your phone. Who are those five people? Mm. Fig- figure out an emoji for those five people. It'd be whatever you want. It could be fire. It could be a heart. Whatever. So what that means is, at least I know this on my my iPhone, that 
let's say you have those five people, right? Then when you search their, you know, search your con, like you search uh, even on your contacts, your text, you put the little symbol and all those, those, those are the names are going to come up. And then you, you just sort of even paste, 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 because uh-huh. you've got your people that, that makes it easier. And then you can get the word out to the people who are happy about you, happy for you. And I think that there's such a tremendous power for survivors when they're like, yeah, I'm not sharing this with this person because this is meaningful to me and I don't want them to ruin it. There's, there's a taking back. You know, some people say, isn't that a bummer you can't share with them? I'm like, no, that you know what they're going to say. So there's certainly a bummer and a grief that you're in this not so functional relationship. I understand that. But let the good things in your life still be good. Mm, I love that so much. Um, as we talk about relationships and, you know, really identifying because we've never spoken about what to do if you stay like we've never gone in this step Mm -hmm. so I really love this it's the sort of thing that I've never necessarily thought about because I'm always just like how do we convince people to leave because that's you know get away from it but to your point I think you've really laid out beautifully Mm -hmm. um, the reasons why certain people don't the shame thing is super freaking important because I assume that that's going to be something that if they decide to stay that they feel shame maybe because they're looking at another Mm -hmm. couple in another relationship and so do they perceive that as maybe weakness on their part, do you think? And then does that tell them a story about themselves? So you're, you're so what you're suggesting is that when they feel shame about staying or falling for it, that they would have to, that they feel weak. Correct, yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. by comparing themselves to other people and other people's relationships. Ah, so comparison. Okay, so let's talk about comparison for a minute. I had a fascinating conversation actually with a hair and makeup artist that was working with me the other day for something I was doing. And, you know, she said to me, it seems like there's two types of people in the world, people who get this narcissism thing and people who don't. I'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's very terrible when the people who are in these relationships talk to the people who don't get it. Because more often than not, they're invalidated. Come on, it can't be that, that bad. This is your person. They talk nonsense, right? And I said, you kind of got to know who knows what, right? Mm-hmm. So... That idea of comparison is so tricky. First of all, we never know what's under the hood of a relationship. We really, really don't. And what's fascinating as a shrink is I, you know, you, you get to look under the hood, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, God, everybody must think these people are the golden couple. And this is a disaster, right? And then you see sort of this chaotic family that's got all these problems. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is a well-oiled, beautiful machine. So I think, first of all, Nothing we see is true. People who are proclaiming all this nonsense on social media are you, it just, it's not, it is, it is nonsense. It's fiction, right? And so it's getting past that. But then I think that people do feel shame. They'll say, this person isn't going through this and I'm staying in this. What does this say about me? Uh, that's a very, very common reaction. And people don't know about this when they choose a partner. That's a big part of, part of the problem is, and, and what we're finding is that Everyone's like, well, the love bombing, it's only going to last six to 12 weeks. Shouldn't I have gotten out of this in three months? No, of course not. Because after those early three months of your relationship, now you've got all the equipment with which to build the justifications. And I actually do think it takes about a year to see a relationship as full on toxic, short of like you know, you're, you're dating someone and you're like, yeah, I'm not feeling it. I'm not talking about that. I'm like, people, someone's vibing with someone. You're feeling it. You're actually falling in love, but it's also unhealthy. Many people will want to, it'll take them a year before like, wow, this is just not okay. Mm. And 
heaven bless those who in the first year or two are like, this was just not shaping up cool, and they got out. And right? is that because the toxic narcissist person knows that they can't show all their cards at once and they finally show it after mm. a year? Like, what is that? It's not a conscious process with the narcissistic mm. people. I think that the whole idea that they're sitting like, right. <laughs> oh, it's 12 weeks in, yeah. I could be a jerk now. Right. They've always kind of been a jerk. I mean, narcissistic people are all about appearances. They're very good at the superficial, showing up, looking just great and, and knowing what people want to see. But when things start to fall apart, it's not because they're like, well, now I can take you for granted. It's not a conscious process. But what's happening is, is that in some ways, some of their defenses are loosening, like some of the things that keep them looking good to the world. And if they think they've got you locked down, your narcissistic supply, your compliments, your novelty is starting to wear off. So you're not as, you're like a stale piece of bread. It'll still do in a pinch if I'm hungry, but it's definitely not what I'm going for first. And that's what you become. You become a stale piece of bread. So you may have this relationship and what's happening is it's three months in, right? Life is happening, right? And you might have more stress at work. You may not be like for, you might say, oh, I'm a huge deadline. So for the next month, I'm going to have to work late or I can't do this or I may not be able to do that. Well, now you're not the perfect source of narcissistic supply again. Life starts getting in the way. A lot of people say those first six weeks, like I was moving things around to make things work. I wanted to see them so much. It was so exciting. La, 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 la. I mean, unless you really are a very sort of charmed life person, life happens. Mm -hmm. And when life happens, healthy people like, yeah, I kind of got to be at work at time. I can't lie in this bed and call in sick again. And when that happens, you've punctured the fantasy for the narcissistic person. You've inconvenienced them or left them feeling not special. And that's where the cracks are going to show. And then you work it out. You're like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know what? Like, I'll figure it out. And we'll have a great time this Saturday. And you do have a great time Saturday. I'm like, ooh, okay, I just made it be great. And then, but you see that push-pull. Mm -hmm. It takes about a year to figure that out. And I can see, just as you laid that out, how much that kind of can water us down. Mm -hmm. um, and then at that year mark, then how... If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. 
As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. If we don't then maybe identify, wow, I've been watered down, then that's where your needs go to die. I've heard the quote that you say, like a narcissistic relationship is where people's needs go to die. Mm-hmm. And so is that it after the one year? As If you keep going, then your mm-hmm. needs are just going to get um, get obliterated. Yeah. So in a person paying attention will say, uh, this doesn't feel good. And like, it's I can't keep up with their demands. And there's a couple of th- many things that have to also be lining up. Lisa, if a person, and I see this happening more and more, especially for people who want children, they'll say, oh, I'm 35, I want a child, oh, maybe it's not that bad, you know, and I'm saying, I got two words for you, reproductive technology, have this kid on your own, you would be better off not raising them in this kind of a toxic space. And so I have to say that th- that has changed the game. I have talked to five women in the last year who have said enough. I am 36 and I'm over this and I refuse to ever have a custody battle or have someone take what's already going to be a hard journey and they're having children on their own and they're like, and if somebody wants to date me as a single mom, great, I'm going to weed out the suckers. Mm -hmm. But now at least I know I'm not raising my child and I didn't relent and give in to a really, really unhealthy relationship. It's a, it's, I am more and more women are stepping up in that way. And actually not as many men, but some men are, I know a couple of men have said, I've just I've really dated a bunch of really unsettling women, but I want to be a father. They find a surrogate, their sperm, egg they choose, baby. Uh, And they're wonderful single dads. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Actually, as you were talking, maybe you can... um, like demolish this idea that I have but every time so when we do these episodes I love it so much the feedback is amazing it's usually about I've left my partner thank you but now there's a lot of people speaking up about narcissistic mothers and they want to know how Mm. to deal with their narcissistic mother now here's the first question that I just have just selfishly why is it I'm hearing so much about male narcissistic partners, but I also always hear a lot about female narcissistic mothers? I'm, I'm so glad you picked that up because everyone's like, aren't all narcissist men? And I'm like, no, because how many of you have narcissistic mothers? Raise your hands, right? So clearly not. Um, what we do know is that there are grandiose narcissism, malignant narcissism, much more prevalent in men, vulnerable narcissists, the more resentful, sullen, manipulative, passive, aggressive, 
that's women. You know, and in many ways, women are not socialized to have those big kind of explosive, look at me, I'm so great kind of traits, though some do. So it is obviously in both. And they're obviously women who are narcissistic. And it's, you know, it's naive to assert otherwise. And so there are narcissistic mothers actually are very impactful because in still the majority of family settings, I think this is evening out in some situations, but certainly not all, women are often, mothers are often a primary caregiver. So they're impactful in terms of their lack of emotional availability and their inconsistency and their cruel barbs and their passive aggression and their superficial needs for their kids to be exactly what they want as basically glorified accessories. That messes a kid up a lot because they're really looking to the mom oftentimes like a disproportionately they want their mom to be the soft place to land yeah i got and then i've heard you say that you know the, the child really just starts to question am i enough or like why am i not yeah enough? exactly why am i not enough and then how does that then so take me through that like how does that have that knock-on effect on the child from the mother's or the parent's behavior and then how does that start to echo as the person gets into an ad adulthood mm -hmm. and do they end up mirroring that in the partner they choose mm -hmm. yeah i mean a classical representation so when we Keep in mind, not everybody who ends up in an adult narcissistic relationship originated from a narcissistic family system. It's not the case. Mm. Some people actually come from really happy families and they meet this charming, charismatic person and they fall in love and they're like, what? And that that's a different story. But quite commonly, if a child grows up with a narcissistic parent, the narcissistic parent's needs take primacy. They're the only needs that are accounted for, mm. right? And the narcissistic parent, in a way, resents the child for having needs other than theirs, as though it's again, it's a coffee machine, right? That talks to you like, really? And the child internalizes that parent's sense of subtle resentment for their needs and starts feeling like I need to make myself smaller and smaller so I don't aggravate this parent. The child also learns that their relationship with their parent is quite transactional, that there are ways to win this parent over look a certain way, do a certain activity, behave a certain way, be perfect, uh, be a great student, um, don't be seen, don't make noise. And so the child in the more extreme cases can almost become obsessive and compulsive because these things, this high level of control gives, lets them feel a sense of control over this parental relationship and maybe I can win them over for the rest of their lives. They will then wonder, what do I need to do to win this other person over? They learn that their needs will be shamed. So there's never a safe sense that I can express these needs. And if I do express them, I'm either going to lose the other person or the other person's going to rage at me. Those are not nice options. So you don't express your needs. Everything is about the parent, the parent's interest. So the child may desperately try to take on the parent's interests, you know, saying, okay, maybe if I could learn to like this, then I can do this thing with the parent, right? So slowly but surely, the child is shaving away anything that's truly and natively theirs and becoming and morphing and subjugating themselves under everything that that parent wants. But what that does is it thwarts the child's development of identity and of self not to mention that the parent's also very manipulative. Again, they're, they're really using the child as a means of getting their needs met. So as that child catapults into adulthood, they may, in most cases, will be very anxious in relationships, try to win people over, feel their needs don't have a space, subjugate their identity under the new partner, 
every so often. If I, if I would pull a number out of the air, 10, 15% of the people grow up like that become narcissistic themselves. Hmm. That was mm-hmm. actually what I was going to ask. Mm-hmm. Is it the kind of, you know, you become it yourself? You can in some cases, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not genetics? Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. No. Not at all. In fact, you look in a family, it's very interesting, actually, because I've worked with, you know, families where there's four siblings. And... And, and I'll be, in fact, I might be working even with the parent of the adult children. And the parent will say, I have one ragingly narcissistic kid and the other three are just great. So, and they were kind of raised the same. Mm. And one thing we do know is something called temperament makes a difference. And temperament is sort of our inborn personality. You look back at the child and you'll see as a baby, maybe they're just sort of a little bit more difficult, fussy, more difficult to soothe. As they came into childhood, they were more attention seeking, more inattentive, more disruptive, um, tantrum-y, difficult. They're difficult kids. The tough thing with difficult kids is the world doesn't like them. Even their parents don't really like them because they're always, you know, they're not sweet. They're just sort of like, look at me, look at me, pay attention to me. And the parents will burn out as we'd expect. I'm not even mad at the parents for that. Um, they may not know how to manage them well. And find, they find it hard to set limits with them because they have to do it repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. Whereas with another child, it might be once or twice and the kid's getting it. So that kid with that really difficult temperament gets lots of negative feedback from the world, not just from parents, but from preschool teachers, kindergarten teachers up into primary school. So what is this child learning? You're no good, you're bad. It, it, it can breed a real sense of insecurity lack of safety, fast, add a couple of other ingredients, fast forward, you've got a narcissistic adult. Wow. Almost every narcissistic adult I know where I've been privy to getting an objective look at their history, access to a parent or something, mm. sibling, in almost every single case, someone who knew them as a child said, this kid was a freaking handful. Like just really not a, like not a fun kid, not a nice kid. Um, not, or not even, not even they were a nice kid. It was, they were a difficult kid. Sometimes a very charming kid. They're like, when this kid was like kept it together, everyone was charmed by them. But it was just like, they were, they were sucking all the energy on this one kid and and parents have said this siblings have said this that this was the tough sibling this was the Mm. tougher child and when i work it backwards on on, like i said it's a luxury when i am able to talk to um sometimes they'll even bring in video they'll say this is my narcissistic brother as a kid and you're like what you know and i've had narcissistic clients who've shown me video from their kids and you guys all it was all there was all there so if it's not genetic then can a parent do something different Mm -hmm. when their kids freaking out and all of this to help them not become a narcissist in the future yeah because i think that you know it's parenting is a long game right i think that it's not i mean i think that that's what's so hard about parenting right we we want to do something once and have it be done and parenting is like you 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 knock the whole tower down every night and you have to build it up Mm -hmm. again the next day and it's decades and decades of that right and if you have anything else going on in your life, I mean, and here's the thing, this is why parenting is so challenging. People bring all kinds of their own stuff into parenting, their own mental health histories, their own trauma histories, their own busyness, their own stress, their marital problems, their work problems. It's hard to have all that going on and be on point with a little person. It really, really is. I don't think we talk enough about how difficult parenting is. And instead, we criticize parents all the time or we give them the absolutely most ridiculous advice in the world. Mm -hmm. So parents can't win. So all of that said though, that it is, what do you do with that child who's having that moment? It is about, it's about consistency. 
It's about routine. It's about predictability. It is about empathy. It's about tone. It's about presence. It's about mindfulness. And what does that all require? That the parents got their stuff together. And I say this as a parent, it was not easy. I made, I mean, I could write a five volume book on the number of mistakes I made. Nothing but mistakes. And, and I did a lot of things right too. And each generation, hopefully we do a little bit better than the one before. As you were talking, help me then put a couple of things together. Because if it's not genetics and they become an adult and they are a narcissist, how come then you cannot change them? Because I've heard you say narcissists are like the weather. You you just can't change the weather, so you have to accept Mm -hmm. them. How then is it not a behavior that can be unwired? Because the person doesn't want to change it. And so you're saying that a narcissist in and of itself, they don't want to change. And so that's why they can't change. Mm-hmm. So it's purely because the narcissist can't see that they should. should right. they, have, they, have, they have no self-awareness. Whoa. I've heard you like talk about narcissism mm-hmm. and why they can't. Mm-hmm. Like that just really hit yeah, me. Yeah, they don't have any self-awareness. So it's that piece yeah. that they don't want to. Not it's self-awareness. Couldn't. It is uh, lack of self-awareness. It's lack of empathy. It's entitlement. It's a it's a stuntedness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a real immaturity mm-hmm. to narcissistic people. Um, but they can't be bothered. I'm blaming you. You're... Uh, you know why I'm having a problem? It's your fault, Lisa. Do you know why there was traffic today? Because you scheduled this interview at this time. That's why I was late. It's your fault. Why couldn't you have scheduled it at a different time? Instead of, Romani, why didn't you leave on time? I'm not going to take responsibility for that. It's Lisa's fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's their fault. Mm. It's the TV's fault. It's the, it's the social media's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my shrink's fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's everyone. So if you're always doing that, and if a therapist, let's say a therapist tries to, come on, take some responsibility. You know what that narcissistic client might do? Not show up the next week. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear that from you. And you know what? If you got enough money, you'll find someone you can pay to tell you what you want to hear. You're right. It is Lisa's fault. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was so powerful. Okay, so let's go back to actually the parents because this is really interesting. And I know my audience really want to hear from you about how to deal with those situations when you have maybe a narcissistic parent. Um, walking away obviously is an option. Some, for some people it is. For some people. Mm-hmm. It is um, an option for some. It isn't an option for others. I've heard you say, though, the thing that gets a lot of us trapped is the notion of, like, blood is thicker than water and you only have one mother. And Yeah, I mean, that's that stuff is, it's ancient and that ancient stuff has done a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting thing, Lisa, because this idea of estrangement, familial estrangement, families that are cut apart and don't talk with each other, has become sort of a bit of a hot button issue in mental health in the last 10 to 15, 20 years. There's one camp that says all estrangement is bad. I ain't buying that. I was reading a woman's book recently, this woman named Stephanie Fu, and she was on my podcast, and she wrote a book on her experience of complex trauma. And she, and as part of her journey in this book and everything, she, she talks to some journalists and some researchers who talked about estrangement. There was something so smart in her book. She said that, Nobody out there wants to be estranged from their family. Nobody's like, yay, I'm estranged from my family. I feel so much better. They say, this is devastating. I'm estranged from my family. However, it was destroying me to remain in touch with them. So it's that ability to have that point of, it's not like, 
I'm going to cut them off and I'm going to teach them or it, nobody, when done correctly, this process of estrangement is one where a person has said, I am starting to completely lose myself that they cut themselves off. And I think estrangement's on a continuum. I mean, I think there are some people who go fully no contact. They're mm-hmm. like, I my, I'm, I have nothing to further to do with my parents. They were never able to take responsibility or accountability. It is harming me to be in touch with them and they're out and I fully respect that. Then there are people, I call them, they sort of, they're physically present with their families, but they've almost become, I call it almost soul estranged. Mm-hmm. Their soul is, estranged. they have like, they said, I, These are people who, if in any other world universe, I would have nothing to do with these people. I find them to be absolutely awful people. I'm embarrassed that this is my family. However, there's a cousin here I like, there's a grandparent I like, and I I don't, I'm not going to upend the whole system, but I can't stand them. And so they'll go as infrequently as they can. They won't have meaningful conversations. They won't share that much. They won't share their lives. They won't share their accomplishments. They've learned to put that barrier there right? That's its own form of estrangement, right? Because they're really not in it with the family and they really avoid them at every cost. So it's, again, it's on a continuum. But a lot of people say, I want to find a balance. And the challenge with parents is when we're with them, we shrink down into children again. And it's how to bring your adult self into that relationship with this person who may trigger tremendous feelings of inadequacy that I've had clients say, I'm going through the world and I'm on it and I'm running my business and I'm killing it and I'm doing it. And then I see my parents and I become the most insecure. It's like my parents are like kryptonite. They're like, I go from being this really successful, strong person in the world into this trembling leaf. Why would you want to be with that? Right. And they're like, I want to figure that out. And you know, that depends on the nature of the relationship, therapy, trauma-informed therapy. Some people do, you know, therapeutic work like called internal family systems. Like they figure out how you've internalized this whole dysfunctional system and it continues to harm you. And then there's a point, and I've seen it happen, Lisa, I've seen it happen, so I know it can happen. When a person's able to say, this is what I came from, it is a mess, I am not defined by these people, I will show up as my authentic self, and if these people disrespect me, I'm going to turn around and leave. I'm going to walk out the door and say, bye, I got to go. Not mean, not, not, I'm out of here, nothing like that, but... When you sense that, that they are, they cannot see you and they're going to disrespect you, they give themselves permission to leave. And they really, and they say, but however, like I remember one woman telling me, I write about this in the new book too, is how she said her mother was so cruel to her whole life, her whole life. She comes into adulthood, a couple of her siblings had passed, so it was just her. Her mom was sort of in a substandard situation, like nursing situation, whatever. Her mother's like, you know, you're just a useless daughter. And the, the woman had a job, a career and all that. You're a useless daughter. You don't help me, this, that. And the daughter thought, I'd be well within my rights to walk away from this situation. The substandardness didn't mean her mom's being abused, but it really wasn't. Like she wasn't getting healthy food. Like it was just not good. So she invested the money to get a better setup for her mom, but it required her to go and check in and check and make sure that the system she created was working. And she did. And she put a lot of her money and she put herself into it and checked, made sure, calibrated the people working it, made sure her mom's like wasn't getting like, you know, sores on her body, whatever. I mean, I asked her, why'd you do it? Because every time this woman showed up, like, you B word, you know, you just left me like you, you, you know what, these people working, they're stupid. And 
on and on and on and on. And I said, you know, with what you've set up, it's going to, it'll last you. Why don't you hire someone to oversee it? No. She said, you know what? This mother of mine left me feeling my whole life that I was a monster, that I lacked all compassion, that I was a terrible person. And she grained that into me. She said, I spent my whole adult life thinking that. And I did the work. I did trauma therapy. I worked with great therapists. I did the work. And I'm not a bad person. I'm actually a deeply compassionate person. And she said, I will be damned if this woman on her deathbed, by me feeling that the only way I can make my point is walking away, that I am going to be compassionate to the end. I, she's like, I wouldn't engage with her. She'd say, my mom would talk to me. I would ignore it. But she said, this was my mother. My bad luck was this is the person I got assigned to. And, but I will see this through. And when she passes, I will know with whatever dignity in terms of her care was seen. And she said, and then I'll quickly throw together a funeral and I'll be relieved as hell when she's dead. Mm. That's the honesty. And that's what people, if they could get to that, she said, I wasn't going to let her rush. She said, that wasn't, she said it was an unkind thing to leave this woman sitting in her own filth half the time. Mm. I'm not doing it. She, she said, she kind of deserves it. But I'm not doing it because that's not who I am. It's not about her. It's about me. It's about how I think human beings deserve to be treated. It's about how I think a person could step up. But it's not about, and yes, it will result in her being comfortable, but I'm not trying to get her approval. Wow. What's the difference in those situations? How could you um, process it to make sure that you're doing it because, okay, this is how I want to feel and this is about me, not about them, versus the guilt Mm -hmm. aspect of like, well, God, mm-hmm. I can't let my mom rot by herself in the home. Like that, that makes me a bad daughter. Even if you've been treated badly, it's the guilt that makes right. you go back. So it's the, if, if somebody said to me, said, I'm a bad daughter, I'd be like, nope, go backwards. Let's say that again. You are, because you said you're a bad daughter. So that was the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go back so you can say it the right way. It's, it's, it is about intention. It's about leaning into it. It's about recognizing that you're never going to fully strain the guilt out of this, right? Never. Mm. But you can be somewhat intentional, right? Because in a way, especially as a narcissistic parent gets older, they're pitiful. They're pitiful people. And people feel sorry for them, right? I'm like, I, I said, and I'll say to them, it's okay to feel sorry for them. They're, they're pitiful. They're absolutely pitiful, Okay. You're not responsible for that. And it's helping them pull the, it, to, to be able to, sim- again, the stack of pancakes, mm-hmm. simultaneously say, this is so pathetic. This person, what their life is, that they sit here, they talk angrily to the television or whatever. Yep, it is. That is true. They are pitiful. And I feel guilty about that. You know, then we have to break that. Did you cause that? Are you responsible for why they talk to their television? No, but. So it's that take, and that's what people who've had narcissistic parents do. They take responsibility for things that are not theirs. And so I almost view the therapy then as almost like you threw a bunch of blocks on the floor. I'm like, can we now separate the red blocks from the green blocks from Mm -hmm. the blue blocks? It's like, can we separate all this stuff out so you can see what's theirs and what's yours? I like that block analogy. Mm-hmm. That's really good. And then the pancake thing actually really did make sense because I think we often get trapped in one narrative. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And this is very, all these things are true and that's what makes it complicated. And they can all sign, because I think we want it to all be bad. See, they're so terrible. They're so terrible. That's why so many people who are in narcissistic relationships says, I hope they hit me. I hope they cheat mm-hmm. on me because then I'll have a reason to leave. I'm like, 
but them emotionally abusing you, criticizing you, lying to you, doubting your dreams, pissing on your aspirations. That's not a reason to leave you. But having a little, you know, having an inappropriate relationship on a one night stand in Vegas, that's the grounds for leaving. That's a legitimate reason to leave. And all this other stuff, which is far more legitimate, they're eating up your soul, not legitimate. Why? 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 That's how our society regards it. Oh, come on. All relationships are hard. Oh, really? Like, oh, what does that mean? They're shaving away your soul. Oh, oh come on. Everyone criticizes people. Mm. But like, oh, well, he, he banged a waitress in the back of the car. You leave him. I see people who are sweet people who make the mistake, right? They get drunk. They kiss the stripper. I don't know what they do. This is not the circles I go in. But they're a really nice person. Like, and, they, and they'll come home and say, I can't believe I got caught up in the moment. And I'm, I'm going to therapy and I'm going to do the work and la, la, la. You got a better chance with the backseat backseat blowjob guy <laughs> than you're going to have with a narcissistic person who's cutting you down. Dude, this is so strong. This is so powerful. I never thought of it like that. Oh, my God. How much it's the society that we have bought into the belief of what is a reason, quote, unquote, to leave a relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. So there's things that are legitimized. Like, she left because he cheated. You're my hero, girl. You go. But if she said, I left because I was chronically invalidated and devalued and gaslighted, I'm like, maybe I need to go on a couple's therapy. But he bought you flowers. He He bought you flowers. He was trying to make it up. And he said, bought you a ticket to Hawaii. And I'm like, okay, so she's been invalidated for 15 years and a Mai Tai is supposed to make this better? I don't think so. So actually speaking about invalidation, I freaking love when you talk about the invalidation game, where if you know you're going to be in an environment with somebody who's going to invalidate you, mm. maybe do a point system where if they invalidate you five times, you're now, you, you owe yourself an ice cream. Uh, and yeah. so like giving yeah. the, the, the plus. Turning it into a game. Yeah. Turn, like I think that th- there's a couple of things too there though. It's turning it into a game like came out of actually something I had done once at an event where that happened. And so it became a game. I was And I was almost like earning points. I'm like, they invalidate me two more times then I can actually get a milkshake so I'm like yeah you don't know so they're like they actually it was they must have thought I was gone off the deep end because I was you know saying when they finally did the fifth invalidation I was thinking oh my gosh on my way home I'm stop the place I'm gonna get the milk so I looked very cheerful I looked super cheerful because I was going to get this thing I never get myself. So you were right? at an event? Yeah, I was at I was at a gathering of people. Do you mind explaining? That? It was just like basically it was a gathering of people. And there's someone there who's traditionally just sort of been a eh, 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 and like oh yeah, I was like, do you really think that's true? And like oh come on, that just sounds like a waste of time and money. Like it was just all these digs. And the problem was other people at the event were asking me some, something about something I was doing. And I knew the invalidator was there. Typically, going back to something we talked about earlier in our conversation, my stance has often been if I knew I was going to be around this person, I would actually avoid him being in a conversation where other people were hearing these nice things being said about me because I didn't want to deal with it. But I couldn't avoid it. So I'm like, I've got to turn this into a game or I'm going to completely, you know, it's going to just be too jarring. And and then it happened again. I, and then I tried it again another time. And it was the same thing. Like, how many times is this person going to say something dismissive, contemptuous, invalidating? And so I'm almost smiling, right? Because I'm thinking like, it's like, it's, you know, back when I was a kid, there were these things called green stamps. You could collect them and turn them in for like household items. And I'm like, 
if I get like five more, I can get a sewing machine. You know, I'm thinking, like, or it's like frequent flyer miles. That's yeah. what people are going to buy. Okay. If I get another hundred frequent flyer miles, I can go to Paris. So I'm thinking, I'm a kind of cheerful as this is happening. I, I don't want to be flippant because mm. I think people are hearing that like, oh gosh, if I'm being invalidated, that doesn't feel good. But the, the idea of being more narcissist resistant is that you understand what you're going into, if that makes sense, right? And so if I know this person, people are going to be there, and I know what the circumstances and da-da-da-da-da-da, I can gird myself a little more so I don't feel completely caught off guard, yeah. right? Where if I go in and think everyone's going to be so happy for me here, and then I start getting these invalidating comments, I might be a bit rattled, sad, and thrown off. But if I'm prepared, it's almost like going into a, like if I'm going into a, when I was back in school at a difficult exam, I knew what I was going into. If I didn't prepare, I would have been, well, I don't know what I'm doing. But if I was well prepared, it'd still be difficult, but I would get through it because I had prepared for the test. Mm -hmm. It is like preparing for a test. And so I think being prepared at some level, like sitting with yourself and saying, okay, this person's going to invalidate me. Maybe I can sort of get through the room in a different way. I could avoid these topics. You can prepare for these interactions. Mm -hmm. And then when they do do their, what they do, invalidate whatever the heck they do, you're thinking to yourself, of course they did. You know, that's what they do instead of, oh, I suck because they thought they said I'm not this and I'm dumb and I shouldn't be doing that. It's not going to work every time. Their days were more vulnerable. There's things we're more vulnerable about, but we can catch ourselves. And I think the more we stop and say, I don't feel good right now. What is happening? We can take, we can be self-reflective and say, oh, I see what's happening. This is bringing up a feeling of ostracism from the past. This is bringing up a feeling of foolishness in the past. This is bringing up how it would have felt like when my father criticized me in the past. Like people can start identifying and recognize that person sitting across from me is not my father and I am not six. And I actually don't really like this person. And I can figure out a way to detach, mm -hmm. either literally, physically, get up, leave, or change the subject or in some cases, I even tell some folks, kind of do a, it almost sounds like a forced dissociation, but let's say I was bothered by you and you were, we were at a party and we're sitting on couches mm -hmm. like this and you were going on about something nonsensical and it was leaving me feeling bad and criticized. You're like saying, well, let me tell you about how I raise my kids and I don't think people should do this. And it just felt uncomfortable to me. I would actually start describing the area around you. And so while you're talking, it would be like two velvet pink pillows flanked her as she sat in her black boots and pants, which killed, you know, I would literally start describing the scene. So now you are Assuming like, your head. Mah, 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 mah. and I'm being polite and I'm like, and I'm looking at everything and like, and the fluffy pillows that resembled a Persian cat. So now I'm kind of, now I'm sort of like seeming <laughs> like I'm really listening to you, but I'm also bringing down my anxiety. Oh, I love that. And that was actually why I wanted to bring up that invalidation game mm -hmm. is because in these moments where maybe people are yeah, just feeling like, something to hold yeah, where to. you feel so yeah. knotted up yeah. and like, I'm just like, what are the things they can go to in, in those time. moments? Yeah. And then mm -hmm. even just talking about family, if you're in a situation where let's say you have a narcissistic mother, mm -hmm. but you still want to go to family gatherings because you love your of sister, course, you love your, your grandmother, brother, whatever, grand yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. In those situations, I'm only going to like think about myself that I would be, get anxious about being around my mom, which is going to make me not enjoy the event, yeah. which is not going to make me connect to my mm -hmm. sister, to mm -hmm. all the people I want to be mm -hmm. around. So in thinking about what tools can I use in those moments mm -hmm. where I still want to go, I know I'm about to mm -hmm. have these comments hit me, 
and I know what that how it makes me feel. Mm-hmm. How do I have a different tactic? And so mm-hmm. the validation invalidation thing was so genius, especially because you were like, and I'm going to buy myself an ice cream right. or, shake or, whatever. On like, or even something silly things yeah. like, okay, now I'm actually going to let myself get that extra thing at Target or I'm going to buy yeah. a book or all kinds of, you know, or I'm going to let myself watch a half hour of TV. Like it was really a reward mechanism. But what it did was it lightened my mood. Mm-hmm. And then that lightening of my mood actually sends a signal to my entire nervous system of like, we be chilling. We good. Mm-hmm. Instead of like, like that, you know, it's a very different thing. And those kinds of, mm, then when it's happening, I think one of the things that throws people off in this situation, because I was thinking about a recent scenario I'd gone through, it was a workplace situation. And it, sometimes people doubt their judgments. They're like, maybe I'm reading this wrong. Maybe I, and that's what, very common in survivors of narcissistic abuse. Even when they're being invalidated, think maybe I'm making too big a deal. Maybe I'm the problem. It's that, again, that self-doubt and self-blame. It's really hard to give yourself permission for something that doesn't feel good. Imagine you're at a big dinner, okay? And there's all this food on the table. Everyone's focused on this one dish. Everyone's got to have tried it. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is the best. I'm, oh, this is so good. And you eat it and you're like, I don't like this, right? And I, I very, I remember having once, like people gave me this, this chocolate and I almost looked like a little kid. I was like, this is disgusting. Like, isn't this the best raw chocolate you've ever had? I'm like, oh my God, like someone find me a Hershey bar. This is gross. And the thing is though, most of us, and even in that scenario, I was actually thinking someone get me a Hershey bar and I was trying to find a way to like, I'm pretending to sneeze. So I could spit the chocolate out. And so, but we in those circumstances, everyone's enjoying the dish or enjoying whatever that thing they gave me to eat was. You think, I can't be the only one who's wrong. It's very hard. And one of the challenges is, is that so many people are like, we can all find a way to get along with everyone. And there are no toxic people. And you shouldn't say that. And all that sunny nonsense pay trust this body of yours it's just like this beautiful honest thing that walks around the world with you and you let your brain i mean i think your brain kind of has the best seat in the house but your body's actually doing more of the work for Mm -hmm. you and so if it doesn't feel good in your body stop and ask yourself this isn't gonna lie to me something's happening right now i must trust this this thing's holding all my pain things holding my memories in a very different way because your what your brain does with a memory is it's almost like photoshop it read it's a memory to make it sort of workable but your body's like no girl you really did look that bad and we are not <laughs> fixing this picture so it's there's a truth here so and i think of this workplace thing was like for a long time this person had bothered me from the first time i met them Everyone else is saying they're great. You're going to have to make this work. I'm like, okay, I'm going to need to be a grown up. But I literally felt sick. And I felt so sick when I had to interact with this person. I'd actually cause some of the wheels to come off the train because without that collaboration, mm. I was actually taking on 200% of the work myself, 200% more than I needed to do. And I was exhausting myself, but I was doing anything I could to avoid the terrible person. It was almost 14 months before anyone would fess up to, yeah, she's actually a really awful person. Because at work, especially, we have to play nice. We can't say, don't you think that person's a jerk? Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm like, hey, 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 like, let's be respectful in the workplace. Mm-hmm. I get that. We have to be respectful. We can trust our bodies. And in that particular case, it was a confusing workplace situation, but my body didn't lie to me from the jump. And when finally that person left, the job became a lot more, it became a lot more pleasant. I felt that too. 
So it is, but all of this, that's why everyone talks mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. Mindfulness is actually that minute where you're like, I don't like how this feels. Lisa, I had a conversation with the person the other day. I liked them well enough, but like I didn't fully feel in my body while I was talking to them. Have you ever had that experience <laughs> where you just sort of like, we're dancing. Are You're dancing like a salsa and I'm dancing a waltz and like mm -hmm. it's just nothing I'm doing is and there's weird pauses and and I had to pay attention to that and say this is not a she wasn't narcissistic she wasn't a bad person but my body is like you know like whatever this is this is sort of a c-lister in your life not in a bad way but like you're not being natural something here there's a block. And again, it's not an indictment of this person, but it was a moment where I could learn and not make it about me that there was something wrong with me. I'm like, something about the dance didn't work. Mm -hmm. We try to we try to dance two different dances, sometimes with a dance partner, and we just end up getting our feet stepped on. It doesn't mean you reject that person. It just might mean that you choose to interact with them in a different way. Wow. And is it because in that situation where you were saying you started to spot and everyone's like, oh, he's lovely. Mm -hmm. And you were like, mm -hmm. something's not right. Is it the fact that we just want to fit in? Yeah, that we it, just ignore is, the body sensations? Absolutely. And in fact, if you look at some interesting research, so there was a real push in research in the sort of the 1960s, post-World War II. The world was sort of shocked at how people could have conformed and obeyed to the such horrific human rights crises that happened during World War II, Right. And so some of this was, there's interesting work by a guy named Solomon Ash. And I'm going to give you this. I'm actually probably not going to present this the right way. But the long story short was in Solomon Ash's research, and we learn about this in every introductory psychology class, they'd show people three lines. One line is clearly longer than the other lines, right? So clear. And everyone's like, which is the longest? And you would have said the line B. I would have said line B. You would have said line B. Then there's like a person that the researcher kind of stuck in the group to say line A. And it's amazing how many people change their vote. Yeah. And with A, it was clearly shorter, yeah. right? So we are, we. this is why marketing works. If we didn't have that tendency to conform and shape, nobody could sell anyone to anything. It'd be like, yeah, no, I, I, that doesn't work for me. Instead of like, you need this. Everyone else has one of these. Why don't you have one of these? Like, well, everyone else does have one. You don't stop to think, do I need that? Probably not, but everyone else has one. So how could I be the only one who's wrong? Our entire economic structure is based mm. on conformity. And do you think then that's why almost a narcissist is somewhat a sheep's in, uh, what is it? A wolf, well, a wolf in, sheep. in sheep's clothing. Yeah, yes. because mm -hmm. they show one side to people and it's like, oh my God, this is so lovely. And then they show you another side and you're, or you get the sense that you see the other side. And other people only see one thing. And so right. they're saying, this person's amazing. You get this sensation that, hang on a minute, maybe something isn't right. Right. But you ignore it. And you it. ignore it or you talk yourself out. Because of it. everyone's like, saying he's charming. And especially, if, and they're charming, they're cool, they're amazing. Look at all these things they're doing. What's your problem? Get over yourself. Who knows what they'll say to you. And if you have a history of this in your life, of having been narcissistically abused, especially in childhood, self-doubt mm. is your first language. You're like... I, how, and it, it is, that's why the body becomes a really important place to focus on. Because if you do it from up here, all the rationalizations and all the old scripts just kick in instantly. But if you say, this doesn't, something about this is just not feeling good. Let me sit with this for a minute. Um, we just don't do that a lot. And, mm -hmm. and we are very suspicious of people who do. Okay. So you said something earlier. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I, 
would love to hear you said like a sea level friend or sea. You know, here, I talked about. It. I have a video about. I this. know. Yes. That's what I was going to ask you. A, B, and C boundaries. D and F. Oh yeah. Do oh, you, I go all the way down, girl. <laughs> let's go. Okay, let's so let's talk about our A's, B, C's, D's, and F's because I think this is very useful. This came out of a couple of conversations. It was interesting. Some of my, I did this with my clients, and then this woman I met at an event. A woman had said, like, "Yeah, I know. I kind of like level my friends up and down." And I thought, "Oh, how interesting! It was it was so conform." And the reason I use A, B, D, and A, B, C, D, and F is because I used to be a professor, so I'm used to grading, right? And I think that what happens is we have people in our life, and I wish everyone has some what I call A A's in their life. Your A's are the people where you be, you can be yourself. You don't feel like you have to keep everything buttoned up. You don't feel like you have to really censor yourself. You just show up as yourself, okay? That you know that if you called them at an odd time, like, can you talk? And it's all, and it's safe and it's good, right? But your A's may drop the ball, right? They, you know, you may have an experience with them where you don't feel safe, where they may be gaslighty, they may be manipulative, they, um, something about it stops feeling good. A lot of people say, well, screw this, friend. I'm like, I mean, it seems like you've had some things you like about them. Can you bring them to a B? Bs might be a little bit more tentative, not that full you. You might hold back the vulnerable parts of yourself thinking these people are not responsible enough. You know, it's like, you you might not, you don't always loan your car out to everybody, right? So it's a psychological equivalent of not loaning your car out to them. So you hold some of yourself back. Your bees may screw up too even more. You might think, oh my gosh, like now you're getting dark. Like, this does not feel good. And then you can level them down to C's. The reason this is important is a lot of people are feeling like, whoa, as soon as I find out someone might be a little bit gaslighty or narcissistic, I got to get rid of them. I'm like, no, you they don't. Go you're not going to have anybody in your life, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, an F would be mm-hmm. someone who really betrayed you, lied to you, betrayed your trust in a way that you're like, I can never trust this person again, right? And then I guess under an F is somebody you just completely removed from your life. But having that ability to say, you know, this, it's like, I have to trust them. They're my good friend. They just did something that really betrayed your trust. And let's say you tried to talk to them about it, say, hey, what happened? And they deny and they deflect and they blame you saying, okay, this does not feel safe anymore. Bring them down to a B. You don't have to get rid of it. You might even take it from an A to a C. That's a drop. But it's a way of saying that just because you're sensing patterns in a relationship that leave you feeling uncomfortable, you can try to communicate about it. And if that doesn't change it, doesn't still mean you have to say, I'm out. It can say, they're here on a more limited basis. Mm. You know, I, they're, it's just, and they're not going to stay at my house for a week, but maybe we'll have one lunch. It's that. It's, it's a, it's, and you can then see that this isn't about throwing everyone out, but having enough self-respect to be able to move that, you know, move that boundary you need. And I know culturally this is hard for people. Some people say, it's my family. We're all supposed to be like, we're supposed to be open blah, blah, blah. It's how we, we do things in our culture. I get that. I came from that kind of a culture. And I say, you can still do it. You can still show up. And in your mind, I mean, as strange as it is, you can imagine there's an A, you can almost like little letters over their head. Like, I'm going to go, oh, this cousin I trust fully and I'm all in and we're just in it and loving it. But then one of our C's comes in and the, rest, the conversation may restrict you. Like, you can imagine you're sitting on sofa, you're sitting with your cousin, you're yucking it up. And then the this, your, your sister comes in, you don't really, your sister you don't trust. And you're like, oh, hey, what are you guys talking about? 
nothing. She was just showing me this new game on her phone. No, she wasn't. She was telling you something about her relationship. She was showing me this new game on her phone. It's a silly thing. And, you know, oh, okay. Well, you guys are laughing so much. Like, oh, I felt like I was three playing this game. And so now you are you kind of being, I don't think you're being deceitful. I think you're protecting your cousin and your conversation where you were talking about something that you knew your sister would judge. Sister's still there. You're still at the family gathering, but you don't have, you can see. And then another person may come in and you're even more careful. And then another A may come in and you're all now sitting together. We all do this. I don't think, I think people need to be aware you're already doing this. You are going through those fluid boundaries. It doesn't mean you have to give everyone up. And I think that's what's getting contorted, honestly, Lisa, mm -hmm. in the TikTok of the narcissist world, and people are trying to simplify too much. Get out, girl. <laughs> Work away, girl. And I'm like, oh my God, a minute and a half does not get at the subtlety of, I had a history with them. They betrayed my trust. I'm not losing them, but I'm going to be careful with them, really careful. And that may not be as pithy, but I do think that people have to recognize that some people say, well, I don't want to be the sucker who keeps the toxic person around. No, you had a wake up call. Mm -hmm. One of them in your life, have them in your life, but be careful, be aware and catch yourself if you're justifying and self-blaming. Oh God, I love that. And then also not to do it out of the punishment, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not like I'm going to show them. So I'm going to take mm -hmm. them from an A to a C and no. see how they like it. It's based on what their behavior. It's based on how safe you felt with them. Yeah. It's based on, you know, you, you again, it's giving yourself permission to gauge your own safety mm -hmm. and make decisions accordingly. And I think the world pushes us to treat everyone like an A. Oh, that's actually really interesting. So why then do we are is our inclination to take someone from an A to an F if they've done one thing wrong? Is it out of self-preservation that you've opened yourself up, mm -hmm. you've trusted mm -hmm. this person, and now they've done it, so I can't ever trust them again? Mm -hmm. It's a black and white, right? That makes it so much simple. You did that, you're terrible, yeah. right? Versus they this person showed me what they're capable of, right? It was a um I was working with a client recently and we were talking about that sense of like when you show me something bad that you could do to me, you've now shown me what's in your behavioral repertoire. And the only absolute in psychology is that past behavior predicts future behavior. So if you did that to me again, I would be naive as hell if I thought you couldn't do that to me again. Okay? So that's where we almost need to gauge things from like, ooh, you could do that to me, huh? Mm. Doesn't mean I need to reject you. Now, this, per this person, this client said to me, why can't we, why, why shouldn't we be able to do the same on the good things they do? And I said, because the good things in some ways are easier for a person to fake right? Like it's easier for a person to fake the good behavior. Hey, how are you? Like, look, I brought you this, this beautiful fruit basket and I'm going to come over and you're sick and blah, blah, blah. So that's almost easier. But the fact that you were able to stick it to me, that, 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 that almost feels like there was no regulation. I wasn't worth you catching yourself or you don't think this is bad. And that's a problem. So I, I know this sounds cynical, but in a way it's, you got to make some of these judgments on the basis of the bad things someone's done to you. Mm. And if they, they showed a capability for them, some people say, well, hurt people, hurt people. That's true. Then that means they're going to hurt me again because they still a hurt person. 
So what then? And I and again, this gets this bigger philosophical issue of there's such an unwillingness to talk in an open way about narcissistic relationships and toxic behavior in relationships that I really truly believe, and maybe this is my sort of tinfoil hat part of me talking, that there is a there's a belief in the world at large that, well, you're just, you know, maybe there's some people out there who behave badly and there's a group of you that we're just going to sacrifice in the name of that. Like, it's almost as though some people just, that's just your bad luck that you're going to have to put up that toxic stuff. But please don't make me call it out as toxic because then I have to change my whole little worldview. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that we, so many people are literally imprisoned and we're letting them stay imprisoned because we're so uncomfortable in having this discourse that some people behave badly. And then the, the, the turn is they've had a tough backstory. So and I will say, I'm sorry. I really am sorry they had a back, bad backstory. I hope to heaven they're able to get the help they need. And they are in what they're doing to this other person is unacceptable. And their backstory is not an excuse. In this moment, they're harming someone else. Their backstory doesn't matter. Mm. How many people's empathy um, really does impact le- letting narcissists get away with things? Oh, a, a thousand percent. The more empathic you are, the more likely narcissistic people are going to further down the track in your life. Because you're thinking, they didn't mean it. They've been through a lot. They had a rough mother. They don't have that much money. They have too much money. They are balancing so much with work and family. La, 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 ba, 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 ba. That, that empathy means we make allowances. We mm. attempt to understand the emotional experience. Of course, you're going to understand a person's history. You can be empathic and set a boundary. You can be empathic and protect yourself. You can say they have had, they've had a rough life and their behavior is unacceptable. Mm. Those two things. Two pancakes, they can co-locate. And then what are those words that you can say with empathy instead of accusation? Um, because I think that that's going to be important. You almost like can't, I assume you can't tell an empathic per- person to not be empathic. No, never. But to then word things in a certain way, like if somebody then, if a narcissist then goes to an emp- uh, emp- empathetic em- person yeah. and um, crosses that line, is verbally abusive, what are the things that that empath can say to the person to defend themselves Nothing. but still feel good about themselves? They can't say anything. That's the problem. Don't get into it. Somebody's abusing you, especially if there is, again, well, first time, sure, get into it with them sure. a little. But if, it's, if this is the 50th time, 100th time, you know where it ends up. So don't get into it with them. You don't, you don't have to scream at them. You don't have to call them names. You don't have to storm away. You can look at them and say, I understand. And you and, and they're going to you and say, in an ideal situation, you can get out. You can't always. If the narcissist is raging at you in a car, what are you Ooh. supposed to do? And that narcissist's favorite place to rage is the car. Really? you can't get out. And there's no one else to see. And, oh, yeah, assuming there's no one else to see. But assume if it's only two, mm. they love it. Because you really are stuck. And it, it's really kind of a bit of a gangster move to get out at a red light if you're 50 miles from home, right? Mm. I mean, you'd have to find a way home. It, it, feel, it might even feel dramatic. Like if you did that, even though I don't think it is, if somebody's raging at you and you could safely get out of a car at a red light or a stop sign and it's a safe place to get out, more people than not would judge the getter-outer of the car mm. as being the problem than the rager in the car. Why? Because it's labeled as dramatic, quote-unquote? 
Mm-hmm. Going back to societal interpretations. Yeah, I mean, gaslighting. It's gaslighting. Mm-hmm. You're a dramatic for that. Obviously, if you're the driver, you can't really do that, can you? Like, if you're driving the car, the passenger is yelling at you, that would be a little bit. I mean, and, and, I, and I don't think you'd be in a position to stop the car and tell them to get out. That would they feel like a lot. They probably wouldn't, right? right? They wouldn't, no. Yeah. So I do think that the challenge is, is that at those times, you can listen. And Lisa, as I say this, there's a recognition that some of these times there's a no win, right? That's the trap. It's the car. Right. You can't defend yourself. You can't explain. You can't even be that reassuring because narcissistic people don't like when you reassure them if too much, because then they feel weak. (laughs) You can't cry because then they'll make fun of you or tell you you're weak. So you're literally in this cauldron of panic what do I do? Under, if it, any kind of circumstance, if you can physically get out of the situation, that's the way to go, right? But in those cases, you can't. You have to recognize that this is having a massive toll on you. There's no other, that's it, because there's no escape. It's like somebody punching at you and you're hunched over and you can't get out of the situation. You're going to be bruised up before this is done, okay? And it will mess with your sympathetic nervous system. You are going to be frazzled and rattled. And the best you can do in those situations is then do the postmortem. Say, that wasn't okay. How does this person fit in my life? How do I avoid being in these circumstances anymore? And I need to allow myself to rest, not take a nap, but like my nervous system needs a minute to get back online. And how do you rest that nervous system? Literally stop, like stop, Mm -hmm. breathe, deep breaths. That oxygenation in the system really is sort of like, it's a sign to your brain, like everything's okay, Mm -hmm. right? We're not running away because that's if you're running, (gasps) you're hyperventilating. Okay, that deep breath is like, it's it's a sign. It's a recalibration. You can sometimes find your heartbeat. Like you could just put a hand at your neck or your Mm. pulse. Like you're connecting Mm. with your body. Hug yourself. Hold yourself. Okay? Get into a physical position that feels comfortable. Some people might be lying down. Be at a temperature that feels right. Some people find it useful to get into a shower or something like that. Mm. That can be really you. And you go into it. It's not like I'm doing this like this. I'm saying I need to come down from this interaction. This hurt me. This felt unsafe. It took a toll on my system. I'm going to be okay, but I'm ho- but I'm not just sitting here like this yeah. and just staring off into space. Right. I'm really talking myself down. That's in the worst case scenario. But it, but there's no getting into it with them, and I think that's the hard part for people. Mm-hmm. And and some people may say, you know what? I want to get into it. I'm trapped in a car with them, so I'm going to go all in. Go all in. Be prepared. They're going to tear apart everything that matters to you. But some people say that's easier than enduring the blows. At least I'm throwing, Mm. I'm landing a few punches of my own. I respect that. Just be ready that they're going to punch back 10 times harder. God, yeah. Um, I'm actually, you know, glad that you added that last bit because that's like part of, I think for me to feel like I'm being pushed around, to feel like I have no defense, I'm just a punching bag. Like that makes me already feel weak. Correct. And so even punching back, even though I'm, Mm -hmm. he may punch or they may punch Mm -hmm. back harder, knowing that I feel like I've stood up for myself would mean something to me. And I'm glad you said that because some people say, is is that it? We just have to lay down and, and just sort of lay down in front of them. No, 
the challenge is, Lisa, that people go into sometimes that I'm going to, I'm, I'm getting into this mm-hmm. with you and they want to be heard. You got to go into this knowing you're not being heard. Mm-hmm. That's it. So like, I want to be heard. I want them to understand. They are not. No, none of that's happening. Right. But if it helps you to get in it with them, they're not listening to you. They're not learning from you. They're not having empathy for you. They don't care. But it may, like you said, it may be more authentic to yourself. You're saying, I'm going in because this is authentic to me. I am not lying down and listening to this. I'm not listening to them insult my kids or insult my work. And you're going to go in and they're going to gaslight, 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 manipulate, abuse, manipulate, abuse, criticize, criticize, contempt, 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 right? No apology, no responsibility taking. But you feel like at that moment, I was authentic to myself. Doesn't matter what they were saying. Mm-hmm. I honored myself. Mm-hmm. This is all about honoring yourself. But if you have an agenda, I'm going to say this, they need to listen, then keep your mouth shut. So have that reasoning ahead of time to know whether you're actually going to be able to achieve it or not. Like this is a pointless endeavor. Yeah. And, you know, and listen, we all slip. I, there's, there's some narcissist in my life I have to deal with regularly. And there's a bandwidth issue too, you know, like, but, you know, I always say like, everyone eats egg whites at breakfast and has a chocolate chip cookie smeared on their house, their face by 5 p.m., <laughs> right? Why? Because somewhere between 7 a.m. and 5 p.m., the day got the, your bandwidth yeah. got depleted yeah. with the nasty phone call with the phone bill and and then the the toilet stopped up and then you had a thing at work and so by again you you wake up ideally repleted that bandwidth goes by five Mm. and you're not the same egg white eater as you in the afternoon right you're like just get me what i want like ah so you might be more likely to say something snipey back at the narcissist and have an argument like it's my fault. I was doing so well at the beginning of the day. Keep in mind your bandwidth is going to deplete over the course of a day, over the course of a relationship. So you might say, I got it right nine times. And then the 10th time I slipped, I said, actually to me, nine times you got it right and you didn't get into it and you only slipped once. Bravo. That wasn't a loss. That was bandwidth. You were That bandwidth of yours was getting depleted with each of these encounters. People go through this with family all the time, mm-hmm. Lisa, because what happens is, let's say they go see their family for a week. Day one, day two, day three, they're you keeping it together. It. By day six, they're like, shut up. Okay, just shut up. And then you're thinking, oh, I was doing so good. And I also say, you did great. You got to day six. Woo. Oh, my God. I love that. And then also even just your hormones. If you're a female, and yeah. depending on when it is in your cycle, yeah. you're be. probably yeah. way more Absolutely. sensitive um, to Not be Not sensitive. We're not going to say sensitive. You're oh. going to be more React, responsive res- to it thank you mm-hmm. i always love it when you correct yeah. me with this, mm-hmm. this sort of thing so you're going to be more responsive mm-hmm. to it depending mm-hmm. on when your cycle yeah. is mm-hmm. so maybe even knowing when your cycle is when, absolutely so like okay this week yeah. is the, the week i definitely shouldn't I go see shouldn't my mom go see my mother or maybe you shouldn't go for a week right 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 mm-hmm. and so i'd say to people like maybe you go and do your three days and maybe there's other people you know in that area give yourself a two-day breakout you're oh my mom's gonna scream and guilt at me how could you leave me how could you leave me it choose your battles either she's going to yell at you for leaving for two days or you're going to get into it while you're in the house which one do you prefer pick yeah definitely not in the house mm-hmm. yeah um and then there's an analogy that you said that really hit me and i think this is really beautiful for people to keep in mind when they're in these situations where you said that the narcissist is trying to play tennis mm-hmm. and you're playing a game of solitaire yeah or soccer or just entirely different game yeah but like, I really like that analogy because it's like the person's trying to react, right? They want you to hit the ball back. Yes, so they're that baiting you. Keep you. going. That's mm-hmm. their game. Mm-hmm. But the game of solitaire is like it's you. It's me. I'm playing this with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. They. 
They want you to interact because for them, this is a very interesting thing. It's part of the reason narcissistic people, I think, are so successful. They're not afraid of conflict, right? And conflict aversion is very common in trauma-bonded people. Mm. They don't like conflict. So you often give in. You capitulate. You relent. Like you're saying, I like to take the fight sometimes. You're also an incredibly successful woman. And it doesn't surprise me. Like you're like, I'm not going to sort of lay down, but someone else would say, I can't, I can't do this. This, this completely shreds me to do this. So they're more conflict averse. And in the way our economy is set up, if you're conflict averse, it's actually harder to get things done, right? It's harder to fire people. It's harder to negotiate a deal. It's harder to, you know, put your, put your, put a boundary down when someone's taking advantage of you, right? If you're not willing to get into the fight and someone else will be like, fine, just pay them, just pay them. If you do that enough, you could be out hundreds of thousands of dollars just giving in mm-hmm. on stuff, right? Or keep a really bad employee around for another five years or something like that. So I do think that people who in our society, in the United States, who are more willing to have, take a fight, to have a fight, do succeed more. And narcissistic people, conflict for them doesn't bother them because it's all about ego. And it's about them flexing their ego. They're not thinking about you. They don't care about your nervous system. They don't care about your feelings. They don't care if you're hurt. They just don't care. This feels good for them. You're in it and you're thinking, this is really uncomfortable for me. And you don't want to have that conflict. It doesn't feel good. So they like it. They, and you know what? And this is something that comes up all the time that someone was asking me this recently is how this person said such terrible things to me. It was like they were gunning for a terrible fight. And yet I saw them a week later and they were acting like things were normal or regular. And I was still like, wah. And that's a very common kind of a pattern in narcissistic relationships where they will just go off on you. And then the next time they'll see you, it's like, everything's fine. And you feel very unsafe in their presence. You don't feel uncomfortable. You're walking on eggshells. Narcissistic people are really good at compartmentalization. And they use that conflict as a place to regulate. It's like, they just let it all out. They feel good. They don't stop to think that this was shattering for you. And if you were to say, I'm still struggling with last week, they'll be like, gosh, like get over yourself. Gaslight. Gaslight. Those are the cycles. So it's almost like a a perfect relationship for a narcissist is to find someone who has had the trauma so that they don't want the conflict. Bingo. And they do that all the time. Who do you think they pick? Because they're the, the people with the trauma bonds are the folks who stick around. Mm-hmm. As a very trauma-bonded mm-hmm. person, I'll, I will attest to that because you are scared. You're scared of disappointing them. You're scared of their rage. You're, you're still the child cowering in front of the narcissistic parent. And it, it's not like narcissistic people are walking around saying, let me find the weakest person in the room. Not by a long shot. And I don't want people to think like, they picked me because I'm weak. No, they picked you because there was something quite fabulous about you. That's what grabbed them about you. Whatever your fabulosity was, you're Maybe it was because you're lit up the room, maybe because you were gorgeous, maybe because you have this incredible ability, because you're smart. Narcissistic people are fussy. Like they, but they didn't, and so they don't, they just, they picked you because you're lovely, right? Then once they've got you, they mistreat you. If you don't walk away, then they're going to keep mistreating you and you're going to turn your light off. Right. So the very thing that might have attracted them to you initially fades because that was all you. 
but you had to give up you to be in the relationship. And then they have contempt for you, but they're the reason your light faded. Mm. But even if they're shining, I assume a narcissist doesn't want your light to shine when you're around Correct. them. So they now- wanted you initially because you made them look good, but then they don't want it anymore. Oh my God, yeah, what the hell? That's a trip to get your head around, mm-hmm. especially if you're thinking of yourself as the victim. Oh my God, I'm weak. Mm-hmm. That's why they chose me. And actually it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Girl, Mike, drop there. I I can keep talking to you forever. That was so freaking amazing. This episode has blown my mind. It's great. It Where can great people find you? Oh, everything please you're find doing. Me. So I, you can find me on YouTube. Dr. Romani's my YouTube channel. Please listen to my podcast, Navigating Narcissism. We've been nominated for an Ambi, which so is like the Oscars for the podcast. So it's really a critically acclaimed podcast. You'll learn from it's conversations I have with people, survivors, experts. You learn so much about the the nuts and bolts of narcissism. Um, you can, if people are really working on healing from narcissistic abuse, go to my website, drromany.com, D-O-C-T-O-R, Romany, R-A-M-A-N-I. Put my name in narcissism, you'll find it. <laughs> if you go to my website, you could, if you want to, if you're interested, you can go to my healing program. I have books out there. You can learn about all of that on my website. And so, yeah, and, and follow me on social media, Dr. Romany, because we're always putting out new stuff, but trying to really kind of wrap the world in this knowledge. So at a minimum, I'm never going to stop people from being narcissistic, Lisa. But what I can do is help break people from these cycles of self-blame and turning off their own lights to make these relationships work.